And for children, young children, it's their way of learning. It's their modus operandi, if you like. It's the way that they develop physically, socially, emotionally, cognitively, intellectually. It's the way that they've been programmed and it's a, it's a brilliant way we can learn much from it. And it's quite sad that very often we as adults stop the play and say, now we're going to do the real learning. Whereas in fact, play is the route to children's real learning and development. Hello, thank you for listening to Mothers Matter podcast with me, Claire Pay. This is the podcast which talks about why mothers matter and what matters to mothers. Uh, today we're talking about play, playing with children, which is something that really matters. It matters to children very much, um, whether someone plays with them. And it matters to mothers, how on earth are we supposed to play with our six-week-old, our 16-year-old, um, how can we play with them and how can we make the most of that time playing with them as well as having fun. So I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Pat Preedy today. Uh, Pat is from an educational background, so academic schools. She was a global chief academic officer for early education uh, early childhood education, and she was the executive principal of a school which catered for children from three months to 18 years old and included boarding. So uh, Pat has a particular interest in seeing how institutions, uh, how schools can help children with play. And to that end, she also worked out that how children move makes a big difference to how they learn. So we're going to be talking about the Movement for Learning project that she um, led. And also, uh, this also led into a project she ran called Parents and Carers as Play Partners, uh, based out in Dubai, looking at how parents and carers, but we're mainly interested in mothers here, um, could play with their children and help their children to play. So my aim with this podcast was to really come up with some ideas as to how to play with our with our children, you know, when you've got a six week old and you're just trying to pass them time until eventually they go to sleep or a 16 year old. How do we play with our children and uh, make the most of that time? So um, we had a few problems with the recording, but I think the producer has made a really good job of it. But please excuse any pings or slight buzzes. And uh, I've got quite a lot to say at the end about a few things which have come up recently uh, in the media and in the world. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Could you tell us how you got involved with being interested in play to start with? So although I'm perhaps known for research uh, currently and research into the development of young children... Uh, I have been and always will be a, a teacher first and foremost. I began as a teacher and became a head teacher of an infant school, actually at a very young age, under, under 30, and um, progressed on through then to become a principal and executive principal of a school that actually catered for children from three months to 18 and boarding as well. And then alongside that was really interested in what made a difference to children, to their learning, to their development, and hence the interest in very young children. And of course, the thing that makes the most difference to children's learning is parents. 
So one of my very early pieces of research was about how parents and schools can work together in partnership for the benefit of children. And uh, at the time, back in the 1990s, 10 sets of twins started the school all in one go. <laughs> uh, and that's where I, I got in touch with what was then TAMBA, Twins and Multiple Births Association. It's still become, has since become the Twins Trust. And so I also did a really big piece of research on the needs of twins and multiple births. One child in 32 actually is a twin or multiple. I'm still involved in that work. So it all ties up together. And play is a strand that runs through from childhood, early childhood, and actually through into adulthood. Uh, we all need recreation and play and, and balance in our lives. Well, how would you define play? What is play? It's, um, it's been much written about. In fact, the books on the shelves that are behind me, uh, I think there's about 20 books on, on play uh, trying to define it. It's something we all talk about. It's actually quite difficult to, to define. It is that imaginary experience where we can... Uh, exist and learn and live and enjoy in another world and interact with, with each other without all the constraints of the real world. And for children, young children, it's their way of learning. It's their modus operandi, if you like. It's the way that they develop physically, socially, emotionally, cognitively, intellectually. It's the way that they've been programmed and it's a, it's a brilliant way we can learn much from it. And it's quite sad that very often we as adults stop the play and say now we're going to do the real learning. Whereas in fact play is the route to children's real learning and development. Does play uh, always have an element of fun in it? Should it be fun? Um, no, it doesn't always have an element of fun actually. I've watched lots of children uh, play it can actually have a, an element of aggression and conflict and trying out um, various things about how you get on with your friends if you think of fairy stories uh, which are managed imaginative they can be quite scary and have a quite quite a few horrible characters in them so um, play is often fun it's often very enjoyable but it actually can uh, be a way of testing out relationships and some scary situations as well. Yes, well, I was reading actually in the paper about um, children playing with coronavirus ideas. I don't know if you saw that. That's, I, think, I don't know if it's research or something. People playing, you know, coronavirus tag and so and squat the, you know, splat the virus and that sort of thing. So I, I guess know it can be quite. We can be quite shocked at the play of children, <laughs> and and if you see, uh, I I've watched children's play when they've had trauma, when they've had a, a bereavement. Uh, I've worked in in Syria. Um, putting a, a, an inspection profile, I'm an inspector for the independent school inspect, inspectorate, uh, putting a framework in there for, for children in very uh, difficult circumstances. And, and there's one father that he was uh, with his daughter when the bombs were landing and shells going off. 
and they were playing that this was a game and she was laughing and um, jumping around and he was tr making it a fun experience for her to, um, to counteract the terrible positions uh, that, that they were in. So play can do lots of complex things for us. Mm. Uh, well, also later, I'd like us to talk about, well, play with very young children, but also play with teenagers mm. and, and how that might look different, differently, uh, different. But um, is there any particular advantage in one-to-one -one play with small children? I'm thinking about um, encouraging mothers at home or fathers, whoever's looking after children on their own. Is there any particular value in that? Yes, that was um, linked to the parents and carers as play partners. Uh, work that that we did. So there's the there's the play that that children do with with other children, and very often play alongside for quite a period of time before they engage. But there's also the very important play that we as um, parents can do with our children in order to enhance their learning development, and most importantly, the attachment. So. Um, we uh, had um, an idea that could we uh, use play to enhance children's learning and development. We were very concerned about the baseline or starting point of children that seemed to be getting worse and that links into the physical development project that we did that I might talk about uh, mm -hmm. a little later. And um, what we did uh, thanks to the parents, is uh, we went into parents' homes. What we wanted to see was what what is the play like in parents' homes. We make lots of uh, presumptions. And what we found is that very often um, it's kind of two things. It's either you go away and play with all your toys and things while we get on what we're doing, and it can be on your own in your room. Or it takes on a sort of um, pseudo-school type of situation where you're the teacher uh, almost getting the child to follow your instructions and even do a worksheet and a, a kind of replication of what you might have in your imagination uh, is school but shouldn't be really as it were. <laughs> and we were um, saying how can we get over that uh, because we know that when um, parents particularly engage with their children, then that can make an, a massive difference to their progress. A colleague of mine, Professor John Hattie, has done a big study on this. And in fact, where parents engage with their, ch with their children, it can make two years, two, two years difference. It would be the equivalent of two years education. So engage is uh, interact now, uh, share, encourage, talk, really, those, those three things. And the way to do that naturally is through play. So it's not supervising the play. It's not saying go away and play. But it's actually engaging in the play as a play partner. You become part of that um, play world. So um, when we observed, we observed the play and very often the children became quickly disengaged and moving around from, from different things 
and uh, getting quite upset sometimes if you're trying to over-control them when, when they don't want to do that. Uh, I then talked to the parents about this method, about you being part of the play and following the children. And um, while they had been talking, we set up in their lounge area uh, a den and all sorts of natural things. You don't need expensive equipment for this. And um, immediately, without fail, the children would be engaged and interested in this, go in, into the den, and we'd say to the parents, in you go, <laughs> and start <laughs> playing and follow the children, and you'd have fruit and knives and so on. And there's one family in particular that stands uh, out in my mind, where they were both solicitors, actually, and they got a three-year-old, and they said, we're embarrassed for you to come because he doesn't talk. He only screams, you know, and he finds it very difficult. And actually, when we were in the tent, I was behind it. And he was very quickly, he said, uh, Nana, because there's banana in there. And actually, when we played the film back, he'd said um, several words. He said about 20 words, actually. But what they weren't doing is they weren't uh, responding back and extending his mm -hmm. language. And actually, they were still playing in the uh, den uh, long after we finished filming at 45 minutes because they were really, really enjoying the play together. And we then analysed it and all sorts of amazing things were happening there. You saw increased eye contact. You saw the body um, position change so that they were closer engaged, much more uh, loving, touching, you know, touching the hair, uh, patting, nodding, affirming, uh, exchange of language, uh, increased vocabulary and understanding. So it was the attachment had deepened as well as the language improving and um, just the sheer pleasure of enjoying your child through play. Uh, and we then went on to um, extend that into the schools with some workshops and just one other parent who stood out. She said, we, we put out all these bits of material, bits of cardboard, saucepans, all sorts of stuff that might look like junk <laughs> you know, around the room. And uh, she said to me, she said, when the children come in, she says, my daughter's not going to play with us. I tell you now, she'll only dress up if it's frozen uh, <laughs> clothes. Uh, I said, okay, well, well, we'll just see what happens. And about five minutes later, I've got an amazing picture of her daughter wrapped in sacking and the mum with a colander on her head <laughs> and, they're, and they're playing shops and, and all sorts of things. So yeah. um, that, that, that's really um, that difference in, in, in engaging play. Uh, but you don't have to do 45 minutes. There's a magic number, ten, the 10 minute rule, which we used in, in the play partners and in the uh, exercise. Um, less than 10 minutes, it's not enough to get the impact. But if you double it, it's like doubling your medicine. You don't get <laughs> get better quicker. But, but 10 minutes a day, we found, had made an absolutely enormous impact on children. And that went way back to a colleague of mine that was a speech and language therapist. 
and she went into homes in Glasgow and she was struck by the amount of background noise in the homes and we and of course that's got worse with all the technology that we've got now and she simply got the parents to turn off the background noise for the magic 10 minutes a day and to engage with their children this is where we got the idea of the play partners from and it was an amazing piece of work they trapped those children long term and unsurprisingly they came into school with better language development better control social you know social and emotional and that sustained that's that advantage stayed with them so the 10 minute rule is really helpful if you're a busy parent because you you're constantly beating yourself up I think are we doing enough have we done enough well most people all the parents we spoke to said that took all the pressure off uh, and actually, in reality, like, like the uh, family I was telling you about, it often extends uh, beyond that. That's a, that's a great um, encouragement, the 10-minute rule, because I remember even as a, um, a mother who was at home full-time, a sense of frustration at all the jobs that needed to be done, yeah. <laughs> the washing up, the cooking, the mm-hmm. washing, and just feeling like I wanted to be with my children, but actually they... Um, I had to get these jobs done. Yeah. And I know as a, a better player, probably, I might have got them involved in the jobs, but then it takes, you know, 25 times longer and you never get your yeah, time to go and play with balance, the horses. Yeah, there's <laughs> a balance there. In the, in the play partners, we say, where you can make those jobs part of the play. And my daughter still laughs now. You met her just before we started because uh, she used to absolutely love dusting and um, the <laughs> vacuum and all, all of those and um, and she still absolutely loves sprouts which she still calls fairy cabbages and you can kind of weave these, this, this magic and there's a lovely book that I've read on my bookshelf called The Room which is um, by a mother who was in a very abusive relationship and she was locked in the room with her child Oh yeah, I read yeah, that. And, yeah, yes. uh, and how she created this this magic place of play for her child, so her child didn't experience um, the the awful um, outcomes of the abuse that 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 was going on in the home. So you can kind of where you can uh, weave life into into make it play. But we've got to be practical as well. So the 10-minute rule helps to, to take the guilt away. And children also do need to be able to play independently on their own and occupy themselves. They shouldn't need to, to have the adult there all the time. Uh, yes, is that a good place to ask you about boredom? Because I know that my, my children, well, particularly my son, would say I'm I'm bored as though I would care that he's bored I said I don't you you have to realize that's not a lever with me I don't mind if you're bored because you'll go Mm. off and find something to do so um but he has a phobia of boredom and I probably did as well but I'm always so busy I never experience it anymore (laughs) a fear I think it's a fear of having nothing to do and there's sort of rising sense of panic at at prospect of boredom so how how can we help transform that um it is right from the, from the start, isn't it, of, of um, children being able to occupy themselves. So playing as a play partner 
but also enabling them to explore and, and play and enjoy enjoy their own company and the company of their friends. So that's a patterning that, that's set in. And then I might want to talk to him a little bit more about what, what he means by, mm -hmm. by being bored. And can you tell me about uh, times when you're not? What, what is it you're doing when, when you're not bored? Mm. Um, and we are very much about starting and ending things very quickly, a sort of consumer society uh, in play. And I notice this in schools and as well. Nurses, we tend to like put the things out and then clear them away very quickly. And we want to, uh, and so that sustained working on something over a period of time um, takes away that. Um, feeling of, of boredom. I was talking to a, a, a young boy quite recently uh, and uh, he had been uh, sort of four weeks working on his Minecraft which was uh, on the table and he'd keep going back adding to it. So something that interests you, something that's sustained uh, mm. helps but also um, we need to move away from being too frantic, from having those stops and periods where, where we are um, uh, reflecting. We're not just skitting from one thing, thing to the other. So that's mm. why I want to talk about what does being bored mean, because just stopping and thinking <laughs> is, is a yes. good thing to do. They're uh, a reflection, uh, uh, a little stop before you move on to the next thing. It's very good. It puts the full stops in your life. Think of mm. a piece of writing where there's no punctuation. We don't, or we shouldn't want our lives to be like that. Yes. Well, I think, uh, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. What he's doing when he's not bored is he's on a screen. And screens are so wonderful and so stimulating um, that... I think for for him, to, I mean, he's twelve now, but this is, and he didn't he didn't have Xbox and stuff when he was very little, but the, the stimulation you you get, even though it's artificial as such, that you're getting from a screen. I think as a parent, you have to really offer something better. I mean, and being being with your child is obviously the thing <laughs> that, yeah. but you you have to have the time to get them away from the screen my children will always turn off the screen if we offer to play with them you know yeah. do something with them they'll they'll always see that as a sort of preference to being on the screen yeah. but I think when parents are very busy it's the, the children are engaged and this was happy. A, a big thing in the research that we did in terms of the uh, movement uh, development um, we um tested children at the start of school because people were saying to us that they were less ready for school physically uh, and uh, even things like eating, going to the toilet, those functional skills. And we uh, used a test in balanced spine and gross motor skills that had been standardised 10 years prior. Leeds University, David Sutton, very well respected and standardised test. We were surprised that we tested children in state and independent schools and in, they were all good schools, good or better inspections, so we, we controlled for things like uh, deprivation. We were surprised that all of the children came in below the norms for that test. 
Now, you might say to yourself, why might that be? Well, certainly children are moving less. We carry babies around in baby carriers and buggies. In fact, with the new ones, you don't even have to take them out from the car, do you? You can carry them straight in and Mm. leave them there. But a big factor seems to be the technology, the handheld devices. And what that does is um, the baby, when it's born, has got its vision near here near vision and through extending and movement and crawling extends that vision just right for reading but as soon as you give it a handheld device you put it straight back here right as it was newborn and the screen moves very very fast and it's also got that blue light behind it it's addictive right and there, there are there's a new um, disease if you like um, about screen dependency disorder uh, and that World Health Organization speak about this and I'm absolutely clear that children under two should not be on handheld devices because it's moving far too fast their ocular motor functioning doesn't uh, develop till about age six uh, they can't make sense of it all physically and there are many other things that they need to do to develop, but it does become then addictive. And you see the rage uh, in children mm. that we didn't see before when you want to take it off them. And all the dangers then of their so-called virtual friends mm. um, and even games and so on. And as parents, I was talking to a group of young people yesterday, actually, um, and um you'll say something like, oh, are you on the social media, even though they shouldn't be? Yes, they are. Uh, And all those dangers uh, out there. So um, if you've then become addicted to that or you find that that's the main interest in your life, it's about balance, then then you get that accusation that you've bored them if you're not doing that because you've been sucked into a virtual world and not a real world. And uh, I do get in trouble for my daughter if we're out in a restaurant and and I'm going to meet her for a cup of coffee after this talk. And if there are any little children there where the parents have handed them their iPhone, she'll say to me, stop staring, (laughs) Mum. Yes, yeah. Um, If we go back to play, uh, in terms of parents of very young children... Um, I always remember one of my best friends saying when her daughter was a few months old, there was only so long she could watch her lying on the floor playing with a coat hanger. She just, mm-hmm. she was so bored. Well, the mother was so bored watching her. But um, there comes an age with developmental stages where they can, the children can do more. Um, what would you suggest for parents to have going on in their brains, maybe, to stimulate themselves? What could they be looking out for when they're, say their babies are doing things what could they be recognizing and helping them move on to the next stage with you are first of all switching off your distractions remember the the switching off the background noise and and your phone and so on so that you are totally focused and that's something i think we find increasingly difficult in life so you're focusing totally on your baby and your child, you're noticing their movements, you're noticing their uh, eye contact, and you're noticing the sounds that they make. And so when they make a sound, mm, you extend that, mm, 
right? And that time. And it's and when you watch this do, it's like a dance. Uh, you'll see uh, the the child move, the parent move. You you are getting engaged, and you are following the interest of the child. So if you put some something out, you if they show an interest in it, you're following it. So for that ten minute period, the child is the leader. You are the follower. What you're doing is. Um, you are, um, somebody explained it to me the other day and I thought it was really good. They were talking about children that were with special needs and they say our job as the adult is to put the ramps in so that the children are able, to, whatever the ramps they need, they're able to engage fully uh, in life. And I thought, well, well, that's what you do as a parent. You're putting the ramps in <laughs> so that the child can learn in terms of the language, the movements, and um, you can uh, use song. That's where we did the Motor Movers program where we uh, used nursery rhymes and linked them then to, to movements. And you get down with your child on the floor with them uh, and you're following their movements. And I, I can guarantee that if you are totally engaged in your child, then you're not thinking about yourself or other things. And that's the big, that's the big difference. That's what we mean by engagement. And it's a two-way two thing. Both, both benefit. Mm -hmm. And as the children, as the babies get older, at what age do they start being able to slightly follow a rule or, you know, play a, an interactive game? Surprisingly early on, isn't it? In, in terms of, because they're very tuned into your smell, your, your, your voice. And you'll notice that, you know, that, that peekaboo and you appear and come back starts actually in, in, in a matter of weeks mm -hmm. uh, that, they, that you get, you know, they are programmed to, to respond to you. Uh, and um, touch, um, again, they've got those primitive reflexes. So when you touch the baby's palm, it'll make a fist with the thumb inside. Later we want that. Right, tickle the feet. You'll get get the um, big toe going going up. So that 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 proprioceptive awareness is really is is all part of that stimulation for for that baby. So touch and smell and sound, all all will will make will will make. Yes, the baby hasn't got much choice. Will will make because it's reflexive to start with, and then they get control. Will get a, a reaction. And we're programmed to respond to it. So that first, you know, what may or may not be a smile, we're all really excited, aren't we? That first ba 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 da 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 it, uh, I, I can see you smiling now. We, we are programmed mm. for, that, for that to happen and it reinforces itself. Yes, uh, also with um, words, uh, my son in particular often asks, what's, what's my first word? And in, mm. the, in the end, I actually found that I'd written down somewhere, it's plain, I think. But actually, he had said loads of words before that. And because I was spending so much time with him, I could, and I'm a linguist, I could mm. oh, interpret yeah. what he was saying and, and teach him more. But you, you have to tune in um, to what they're saying so you recognise the difference in... Vocals. I always found it fascinating, actually, playing playing with the children. But there there comes a time when they're sort of 
two or three and we used to play with the Schleich animals and so on, get them all out and move them around. But it, it can be quite hard work at, you know, six o'clock in the morning or something when you're desperately trying to keep them off the screen. Yeah. Um, it, it can be quite hard work playing with children. Yeah. And that's that making sure you build in times where they can occupy themselves. So uh, you can do things like um, when they've gone off to sleep, making a, 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 an arrangement in the room with their blocks on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um so you, you, you've arranged some, some stimulation. So when they wake up, they're looking and then wanting <laughs> to, to play, play with that. So you create something a little different for them to wake up to each day. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Would you say there's a much for, do you observe much of a difference between how mothers and fathers play with children, either on their own or when they're together? Yeah, you have to <laughs> you have to be careful, don't you, of the of, of the of the stereotypes. And, and actually, with the play partners, the, there wasn't a difference. Both both the parents, this was part of it, played together with the child for for the ten minutes. But but actually, there is some some um, really reliable research to say that that there is a trend to be different. It's, it was conducted by Cambridge University and the Lego Foundation, um, and there were over seventy-eight studies, you know, from nineteen seventy-seven to to twenty seventeen. So it isn't sort of historical, out of date date research. And and there is a trend for uh, male um, to to be a little bit more boisterous. <laughs> Uh, with, with with the children, more physical uh, and more risk-taking. Uh, and they link that to children then being able to self-regulate and take risks mm. that little bit more. Um, so, uh, but equally, we, we have to think there are many um, families, many family types, there are single parent families. So I think if you know that about play there's lots of different sorts of play from uh, physical play um, creative imaginative play uh, artistic play Mm. it's completely free that you would be um, making sure your child had that full full repertoire as part of their early early learning but yes dads generally as in this research can be that little bit little bit more physical (laughs) <laughs> um, and how are mothers different in that research? Um, the the more quieter, the more uh, if we're going to do a, a creative task, um, gentler, quicker, quicker to step in if the child had fallen and hurt themselves <laughs> uh, to mm. do that uh, nurturing role. Mm. Um, how important is it for children to play with other children? First of all, they don't, they just co-locate. Mm. They don't actually really mm. seem to play. And and it sometimes seems to me that actually in a sort of busy nursery or play, preschool setting, it could be quite hard work because they're all very unreasonable three-year-olds. I wouldn't want to spend my days <laughs> with a load of three-year-olds. Um, so is it 
important at a very early age to have them playing co-located with other children or at what age does that kick in that they really do need to start you know just putting up with others and having to share toys and things I think what what you need to do rather than saying let's get some children in as soon as we can and make sure that they have this social time and then as you say it doesn't actually work because either they're playing alongside or they're kind of falling out and wondering what each other has think what are the skills that I need in order to uh, socialise, engage uh, with other children? And you, you were saying about your background, well, I have to be able to communicate, don't I? I have to have been able to express my emotions, express what I want, what I think. So that language development right from the start when I said about making the sounds where you're talking the whole time, reducing the background noise. I'm enabling my child to develop confidently in terms of their vocabulary, speech and language. That's a skill that I need to communicate with other people. What else do I need to be able to do? Well, I need to be able to control myself, don't I? I need to be able to wait there's the old marshmallow test, isn't there, where they put the marshmallows on the table and some of the children just took them straight away. And other children did all sorts of things in order not to eat it, including falling asleep on the table. <laughs> <laughs> because they said if they, they didn't eat it, when the researcher came back, they, they could have two. And some of them mm. just couldn't do that. So, so I need to be able to, to wait, self-regulate myself, take take turns I need to be able to um, uh, sort myself out work out again be independent I can't rely on on the adult all of the time um, so I playing a game think about you know early games that you you can help your child with so that they've got the skills uh, in their repertoire ready for when they come to that developmental stage where there's another child there and they go oh yes I can say something to this other child that person will listen I'll get the response back I can turn take and I've watched many children actually in nursery because of the very expert um, scaffolding by the staff enabling them to do what we call sustained shared thinking where they will um, make something together talk about it look at each other's um, work together on something and then they'll move off it can be quite fleeting to start with but you as the adult can then help them to develop those social skills including what happens when you fall out mm. and when when you you want what that other person's got and you've taken it <laughs> because that's what you want and you haven't got that control and there are some techniques that early as educators can do about conflict resolution uh, which can be very helpful in that social situation where you just take that breath mm. that I was talking about and you get each of the person, so what happened? Tell me what happened. Um, usually um, he or she wanted it and, and took it <laughs> and it was mine and I was playing with it. So what what is the solution? How are we going to sort this out? Rather than coming in too quickly as the adult. And you talked about older children. 
that that works at what whatever age you've got to get the children to come to that point where they can sort those conflicts out themselves and develop mm. that set of fairness often they're really good at it they'll say yeah. things like okay uh, I'll I'll let him or her have it for you know two minutes and then then they'll hand it hand it over after that Mm. Um, at what age uh, I mean presumably there's got to be a sort of developmental process to taken place before you can start the sort of sharing and understanding there's got to be a, a level of communication yeah. possible um, so what age would you say that's three or two or what age is it useful to start putting them with other children I think it's always um, useful um, if you've got friends useful is a funny word it's always positive mm-hmm. isn't it to yeah. to get used to to other children straight away and I know lots of, of uh, uh, you know long before sort of school people meet up don't they where often when they've been at hospital and so on and to get together socially to, so that you begin to understand because the baby you know psychologically it starts with the I the me 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 and they they discover they've got a hand they discover they've got a body and they begin to discover that there's a world out, outside so if you're bringing in an experience uh, safely of other people and other children it then extends their world and then you're supporting them to develop those skills to to make sense of it and remember story is very good as well um, so yes, the more that they can uh, the, uh, mix with other children, the more more it help, helps them to widen their world. And there are still play groups. I know a lot of children go to nursery from quite quite young. I mean, children were in my nursery from three months. Um, but but equally, we we run uh, play groups where parents and carers then could come come in and join. And, and we did a lot of play work with, with them, showing how we um, developed particularly um, physical and imaginative play and outside play. Mm. Um, before we... Uh, I, I want to talk to you about your the movement for learning and some of the specifics for that. Mm. But um, just from a sort of uh, self-interested point of view, can we just flick to talk about teenagers playing and teenagers playing in families so when I looked up teenagers playing they said all oh, teenagers sort of hang out and that's what they're doing but when you're looking at doing um like we do a lot of board games and we like to the four of us like to sit and what well, the parent we like to sit and play together and then the 12 year old 14 year old wind each other up um you can see that there's still a lot of value in the in the whole board game thing uh what what are teenagers learning still or what what's a good way of playing with them um, it does vary, <laughs> and they do go through that that kind of um, stage um, where um, you used to be as a parent the most important thing in their lives almost, and then it's a bit of a shock, isn't it, when when their friends become the most important things in their life, and having friends uh, and being popular can become. Uh, really important and a source of great worry for for many young people and that's why if you can sustain the social network that support that attachment as they get older through 
uh, through an interest. Now it may be board games, it may be a sport, that often is, uh, is, is a, a route. It may be through helping other people, but it's finding a, a vehicle through which you, you engage. Dan Brown um, has written a really interesting book. He, he spoke to many, many um, teenagers and, and young people. It's, it's called Play, and it's about play for older uh, young people who have, have been in uh, prison and where life had really very tough for them. And through um, what we might describe as play and activity, how you are still able to reach reach people. So rather than sitting down and lecturing them through mountain climbing or rafting or activity, uh, something that they actually enjoy, you can you can then just like the little baby with the the play partners get get that um, interaction. And you have to follow the teenager in just the same way as with the baby. They may not want to talk to you when and how you want to. <laughs> it often works better in the car, isn't it, when they don't when you're not looking at each other. And you've got to make sure that you you're not too busy that you miss that moment. Remember the little boy that said, Nana, are you too busy when your child's a teenager then when they're saying, I need you? in their own particular way, or maybe just grunting, or maybe just looking very unhappy. Are you just are missing that uh, signal? Mm. And so the attachment is for life. Mm -hmm. right? it, it, it's always there. And attachment means that you are engaging, you are tuning in to the signals that that other person is giving. And you are simply saying, I'm here for you. Mm. That's true. I mean, we find that it's uh, we try and have a sort of routine of playing, you know, lots of different games that when we're free at the weekend. Because if we don't mm. sort of make that part of what we do, then we're all too busy and yeah. we, we rush off. Um, yeah. So we do, we do, but it can be quite hard work sometimes because yeah. they start arguing and so on. We usually make it to the end, but um, it's just a way for us, it's a structure for us to spend time together, I think. Yeah, and that pushing and arguing, just like the, the, the children in the nursery, that's part of it. That is part of mm. the learning experience, even though it can be unpleasant. Uh, and, and are they learning that when I push hard enough, people will give in? Or am I learning that actually when I push hard enough, there's a boundary there and, that, and that's important and that's supporting me and that boundary is not going to be pushed no matter how much I... Um, try try and get round it it's a security yes it's almost like a lightning conductor for conflict <laughs> they, they, oh, we, yeah. <laughs> they can get you know well they're stressed out on each other and then we will go our merry and someone wins and we all go our merry way and carry on in life and and calm down but it does seem like a, a real sort of flashpoint but it still feels important to do and not to walk away from it just because it's yes. hard work that's the important thing about not walking away, and that's what many young people will tell you that have had you know, really difficult circumstances and things have gone, gone wrong for them. They've actually never been at a point in their life where somebody's actually stuck with them. Mm, mm. Um, so talking about the uh, movement for learning, uh, I don't know, is that the technical term, the, the the, all the studies you did, can you talk a bit about what 
physically is going on in play and why it's important, the whole thing about crossing the midpoint and, and, and being ready for school, um, going back to the young children again, I suppose. Yeah, so um, it's very interesting that wherever you go in the world, children, unless there's something wrong, follow that same pattern of motor movers, you know, where they lift their head, they, they're rolling, they crawl on their commando crawl and then they creep and rock and so there's a, a pattern that um, that they follow through and I think we're only just realising how, how important all of those movements are in terms of the child developing the gross and fine motor movements and balance they need for learning. First of all, in terms of balance, and that's done through lots, of, that's why children are active. We're always trying to get them to sit down, but they, they need <laughs> to be active to develop the vestibular balance system. That does a lot of jobs, but it particularly controls the eyes. So um, you, when you're reading, you need a co very complex movement for the eyes where they've got to yoke and work together and fixate and jump, fixate and jump, fixate and jump, and jump and track. So if your balance is poor, that, that print's going to move up and down and you're not going to have that muscular control in order to read. And then I spoke a little bit about uh, near-far vision the, and the midline. So when the, you see a little baby and it turns its head to one side, it'll stretch its arm and you'll get a, the other knee bending up and, and you turn the head and you get that sort of movement. That's there. It helps the baby to be um, born to work its way down the birth canal with contractions. Although we know that many they get stuck or the pontoons or cesarean, uh, so they may not have, have used the reflex for, for that. And then, if they retain that, it means they've got, if you like, a midline crisis. So if they try and cross the midline with their eyes. A word or letter will look one way on one side, another way on the other, and another C will say, well, you knew it was dog there. Why don't you know it's dog over there? That's because it looks completely different on, on different sides. And in terms of writing, it's like having an elastic band on your arms. So you get that pull and you see that they start up at the margin and then it, then it comes out. And they turn the page in a peculiar way. To, to try and compensate and that um, the crawling extends that vision again near to far so if they haven't gone through that sort of crawling phase gone straight to walking or bottom shuffle often then there's that problem crossing the midline and then they'll have that difficulty copying so they'll something will be on the whiteboard or whatever and they get into trouble for copying spellings wrongly and it's because they can't transfer from what's on the board back to their page. Why is it so important? So the midline is, is literally the middle of your body. Yeah. And what is it? Why is it that that's an you issue? You need to be able to integrate left, right, left and right so that, you're, so that you can get your eyes working, going across that midline, your writing goes across the midline. Think of all the sports that you do, mm -hmm. cricket and football, uh, catching the ball, you'll see the children, they're just not able to locate where, where it is in space. So 
much of our learning, if not all, and you talk about speech and language. Remember, speech is a is a is a physical movement thing. You've got to be able to move a whole lot of muscles to get in a in a coordinated way in order to to speak. But crossing the midline particularly affects reading and writing. You need to be able to do that. So you need to be able to function one side on its own and also integrating across the middle. You've also got to be able to coordinate top-bottom. It's another reflex called the tonic labyrinthine. So forward, very floppy, back, very stiff. And children who can't coordinate top-bottom, the clue is often in their swimming. They, um, when they, they swim on their back, uh, more comfortably because when the head goes down the bottom goes up when the bottom goes down the head goes up so in order to learn we talked about the palmer if your thumb's inside you're not going to be able to hold the pencil no matter what you stick on the pencil you know these fancy little things that they go on it's not going to make any difference if you haven't got that able to hold it and you haven't got that physical posture in order to be able to um, coordinate some, it's really complex to to read and write. So everything has to be physically working and functioning as well as it can. And it's like an orchestra all, all together. And would you learn all those naturally through what we might call natural play, just, you know, with the parents spending 10 minutes with them? And I don't know, would you go out your way to place objects on different sides of them and you range would, things up and down. Um, mostly learn, that's why you're programmed naturally. The child is programmed to crawl and roll and, and, and so on. But what we found was that actually that wasn't happening in modern modern life. So that's why I designed in the research project is the movement for learning. So we designed programmes 10 minutes a day uh, that the schools did, and after a year, the um, control, the in, in the intervention group came back on track. Surprisingly, though, the control group got worse. Hmm. Right. Um, so that is saying that even though they've got great early years and outdoor play and all the things, this is showing that there's something missing in society. So although they sh children should be getting this. At the moment, many of them are not. Are you saying so, they went backwards, that things they could do at the beginning of the year, they couldn't do yes, at the end of the that's year? that's right. The scores were worse. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, I think there's lots of things going on, on there, but I think um, there is still a lot of sitting in mm. school uh, for those, those very young children. And although they might be able to, if you like, parrot sounds there's phonic programs and all the rest of it underneath they still haven't got there they still weren't secure enough in those movements and you know yourself if you don't use it you lose it so mm -hmm. they still weren't sufficiently moving in order to uh, to um sort of inhibit the reflexes and bring in the postures and be be where they they needed to be that's really interesting because with them um... We always think of boys as being much more physically active than girls, but girls, particularly in primary school, accessing learning more easily, that the learning sort of developed for girls. Well, I found this with, with my two. And I even in year six, I was remonstrating with the head teacher saying the boys, they just need to run around a lot more. They're not made to sit in this one room. And, and at secondary school, it's better already because they're walking yeah. around. 
but it's it's almost it's almost counterintuitive that the boys are the ones who are better really physically quite often but they can't learn as well because the teaching I think is delivered in a sort of steady fact-based way whereas yeah. girls who aren't physical as physical are able to access learning is that is that yeah, a right and assessment what, what you've seen is um that if you do a more um physical and um, hands-on type of approach the girls don't suffer because of that they still learn really well but it is mostly boys that that gain from that but it was boys and girls that if they've got that um a gap if they had a difficulty crossing the middle line if they had got a palmer it didn't automatically um correct itself and it was the intervention those very specific movements that enable that that group to to move forward and what would be the extrapolation in say a 14 year old who who had struggled with these sort of things at age five? How would you would you be able to recognise? Would you be able to go and look at someone yeah. and think I know what's gone on here? Yes, and in fact, in fact, we do do that. The early part I went on to write motor movers then, which was right the way through from babies right through, and it's a rainbow. It's deliberately a rainbow, so you work through the colours, so that you're not saying, oh, this is a particular age age group because it's actually never too late to, to, to get these things in, in place. And in fact, I think there's quite a few people uh, struggling, particularly with reading and writing, that, that I know benefit from the programme. The earlier colours, the red, orange and yellow, are linked to nursery rhymes, so those are obviously suitable for older students. But once we get into the green and above, those are really traditional, if you like, looking time exercises again the magic 10 minutes that they can do themselves and interestingly enough just before I um, before I started talking to you I had uh, seen somebody uh, three years ago a young person in his 30s who'd had a, a stroke and was really despondent you know couldn't open his hand could have no balance couldn't stand up and I did the programme with him over a period of between 18 months and two years. And um, he um, managed to, to get back to work, you know, got, got movement, got balance back, relearned to ride his bike. It wasn't just my programme. Remember, he was very determined and there's lots of things, there's no magic fixes, but certainly the movement programme was a big part of his recovery. And he's just contacted me because in COVID he feels he's gone back a bit and he's struggling again, particularly with head movements and so on. And he's spent a lot of time um, on the technology communicating. And he said, uh, could, could I um, give him some more movements? And, and of course I will, I can, can see him. So it's, it's never too late. And sometimes mm. you need to go back. Movements is a really important part of our mental well-being and how, how we are as, a, as people, how we function. So if people are concerned about their, their children or their class, is this something they can contact you about or is it a programme people can access independently or how does it yeah. work? Uh, I don't give the programme to um, parents directly. Uh, it, it is designed to go through schools because um, uh, it's important. Well, first of all, uh, the teachers are trained, they perhaps need a bit more, we do more training, but they are trained. 
but I think it's important um, that it's bigger than just working with one one person. So uh, if they feel that it's something that would work for um, for their school, they can then look on the NeuroA website, and we're happy to talk to the school and say when they're ready. Um, we can uh, do the training and they can put the program in there and then the schools work with um, the parents to do some of the extra um, at, at home, the extra movements at home. But it is designed to integrate into the curriculum. We're just putting it um, in Arizona State and mm. there's a, a absolutely wonderful um, special needs school there that we worked with and now it's going because we want to be fully inclusive and now it's going across all the schools and we did all, all the training with the staff remotely and then they're putting that because that I think will make a bigger change for children. Mm. But are there individual exercises if it's a, a mother or father at home are there yeah. is there somewhere they could look up exercises I remember something about walking along a line or standing yeah. on one leg are there individual things they could just sort of check with their children? Yes, yes, there are, um, and there is a parent section on, on, on the website. So it's, it's any of those movements that really develop that, that uh, balance. So rolling down the hill, uh, walking, as you say, walking along the line, forwards, backwards. The golden rule is that if you, if you go one way, then you always go the other. Imagine the vestibular fluid swishing, okay? <laughs> So one way, then the other, and then another golden rule is to be on your front and on your back, you know, so that, so that you have uh, floor time. And then anything then that, that develops that crossing that midline, the through, through a game, so that cricket's great, throwing the ball is great. So if you're throwing the ball, don't always throw it straight to the hand, just think about can I throw it diagonally, can I get one hand, can I do it with the other hand when I'm throwing it back. Can I go high? Can I go low? Can I go front and behind? Lovely. Well, I must let you go in a minute, but I just had one more question, um, which is the issue of too much movement. So I hear about um, children, and I think my son's a bit similar, where they're constantly fiddling. Um, yeah. And that, I have vague recollections of the primary school doing something with children before school to help them settle down. What's going on when there's too much movement? Yeah, the sort of attention um, deficit. Mm. and you're actually firing. In fact, the ultimate in movement is to be absolutely still. Hmm. That's when you, you know you've crap movement. And it's <laughs> counterintuitive to say, in order to be absolutely still, I need to do more movement. I need to be able to, to develop and get that, that control. But in addition to that, there are sometimes... That there is, if you like, the way the, the brain functions, that, that chemical firing. For, for a very small number of children, then some medication does help. But for the vast majority of children, it's actually doing more movement and learning that focus. So when I'm saying touch the fingertip, I'm not saying, right? So for that 10 minutes, we're doing those very precise movements where we've got that control, we're not rushing. These are done slowly and precisely and specifically. And that really helps you then to get that self-regulation and that, that, that self-control. Mm. 
Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, um, Pat. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I, I feel like we've sort of touched on the surface of all sorts of things. Um, the website you mentioned is Neuroway. Yes. Is it the .ae yes. um, website? Yes. Okay, I'll put a, I'll put a yeah. link to that. Um, and uh, that, yeah, just really, really helpful ideas. But I think it will make people want to look more into it. I don't think we've answered all the questions. No, <laughs> it's like an onion. The more you get into it, yeah. the more, more you, do, you, you want to find out. So if you want to find, find out more, uh, we've written uh, in the book, Early Childhood Education Redefined. And in mm -hmm. case you think I make a fortune from that, all the proceeds go to the British Heart Foundation. Mm. Then there's information on the website. And then there's the academic paper where I've forwarded you uh, the link to that. Uh, so that you, you, if you're interested, you can go more and more into it, which is what happened to me. That's where I started. <laughs> you know, yes. started as a teacher with the children. And thought, this, there's much more to this. There's some mm. specific things that if we just know, and they're not big, not big things in one way, um, if you like, a little of absolutely the right input can have an enormous impact. And mm. we're under a lot of pressure, aren't we, to buy big things, big toys, big programs. And then when we look at it, I don't know, like the literacy strategy, no impact. I was on the team that developed the baseline assessments with Durham University. 30 years later, millions on, on it, no impact. Numeracy strategy, minimal impact. Mm. So, 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 we need so to the get, impact yeah. on play is it? Yeah, yeah, the impact on play, massive, and yeah, yeah. we keep so, keep dismissing it. We go, well, it's got to be more to it than that. Well, actually, <laughs> it's not. No. If you look at look at the children and how they develop, how they program, where it works well, and actually follow our instincts uh, in mm. terms of parenting. Uh, very often, they're right. Hmm. And actually, it reminds me of all the baby Einstein stuff that went on. I think it's been banned now, but that was totally wrong because yeah. it's usually a computer program to try and let children, make children learn what they could learn. They should be moving around in order to learn. There's many things out there, sadly, that are based on no research. <laughs> and people uh, in the marketing can, can make it seem, you know, so academic and so true and we can't afford for it. Which is why, this is why we said we needed to do the research. We needed to have behind us um, to show, to show that, 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 that there's um, what, what's in this. And also, we, that's why we didn't want it to be commercial. You know, so people say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? There's absolutely nothing in it other than being better for children. And that, mm. that's, that's the number one goal, and that we keep improving our knowledge and understanding uh, rather than people who have been very clever, I think, of putting some, some stuff out there in the market, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Dr Pat Preedy and uh, you're enthused and encouraged 
and have some ideas about how to play with your children. Um, I want to talk about a few other things now. First is a podcast I listened to. Well, it's an old BBC programme called Witness History, and it was called The Good Enough Mother. And it was an interview with a chap called uh, Donald Winnicott. Well, actually, it was featuring him. He died in 1971, featuring his work, um, which came along in the sort of 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, talking to mothers about how important it was just to be good enough that uh, he argued that the mother is a specialist in her baby. He said that, I think the most important thing is that you easily feel your baby is worth getting to know as a person. No one who comes along to give you advice will ever know this as well as you know it yourself. And regarding feeding, he said, the two together know just what is right more than any outsider ever will. And he also says there's no such thing as a baby. It doesn't feel itself separate, which is something we know that that goes on for quite a few months. Actually, the baby still thinks it's part of the mother. What I liked is this, he said, there are all sorts of mothers. Some will be good at one thing and some at another, or rather some will be bad at one thing and bad at another. Well, I'm not very good at art. I've never been very good at getting sort of arty things out. So, um, Yes, I can identify myself by what I'm bad at. So this good enough mother was supposed to liberate parents from uh, trying to be perfect. And he said the the important thing is that um, babies realise that their mothers aren't perfect and that not all their needs are going to be met immediately and that they learn to cope with that and to tolerate it Um, but they will express their um, emotional feelings you know anger disappointment um, and eventually this will lead to independence and gratitude this is what I was saying he was saying so I think it's a very freeing concept that he said the main thing of being good enough means being sensitive warm and empathetic or empathic towards your baby being physically and emotionally available for them and meeting their needs responsively and providing a nurturing environment where your baby feels safe, contained and held, both literally and emotionally. So, And to be good enough in these ways requires an ability to be adaptive to the spontaneous experiences of your baby. So it recognises that, um, you know, you don't have to be a perfect parent and also that it's important for mothers to follow uh, a sort of dance with their babies, that the babies tell them what they need, the mothers are able to meet them. It's really the antithesis of a lady who was around uh, 15 years or so ago when my children were being born called Gina Ford, who was very much, you know, you feed them at 4pm and if they're hungry after that, tough, you know, this two-week-old should learn to cope till the next day. But what was really interesting to me and very disappointing in this witness history program is that even though Donald Winnicott talks about the good enough mother, because it was the BBC, they felt obliged to talk about caregivers, uh, you know, the good enough caregiver. And it's not he doesn't talk about that at all. He's talking about mothers, but the BBC is incapable of using the word mother. So I got really fed up with (laughs) with the narrator who kept changing it from mother to caregiver. Anyway, and I also wanted to mention another couple of uh, podcasts which I've listened to. Um, One is called Do No Harm. It's only just come out. It's NBC. It's an American one. Uh, You should be able to get it wherever you got this podcast. Oh, it is horrifying. It is about a lovely couple um, whose baby has an accident and they end up going through the court system. Their babies get taken away from them. Um, I won't tell you what happens in the end, uh, but it is just 
harrowing and they record the night uh, where the the two-year-old gets taken away as well as the baby gosh I was in floods of tears it is just so scary what could happen I mean obviously child protection is very important there are lots of children who get abused who do need to be moved to a safer place and they they don't say that's not the case but this story it goes over you know weeks and months um it's just it's just petrifying to think about your your children being taken away from you for something that was really just an accident so that is called do no harm uh if you if you want to listen to something that makes you really appreciate having your children with you the other one is called goodbye to all this um it's another really sad one uh and it's about a mother whose um husband develops cancer um and dies i mean that's the premise of it i'm not really giving anything away but she has two sort of preteen daughters uh again a really uh sad listen but the reason i mentioned that one is it's what's really interesting is after her husband's death she really can't function at all and she has a friend come over who just writes her some shopping lists and writes her some food lists because um the some menus because she can't cope with the idea of cooking and providing meals day after day um because her husband used to be quite good at cooking but what's really interesting is one day when she's starting to feel a bit better she goes to the shops and she buys some food and she cooks a meal for the children for the girls and they complain that it's not takeaway pizza and it and she feels good about that and it made me think actually as a mother it is important to be able to function in such a way that you're able to put up with your children's complaints i mean i know when times have been difficult for me in the past i i can't cope with any confrontation i think i either give in or i scream at the children because i can't moderate the way that i'm behaving but actually being able to serve them something that's not their favorite meal i mean we go back to the meals podcast from a few sessions ago is it shows strength you know you're you're you've made the effort to cook the food you're serving it because you know it's good for the children and you want to give them some variety but it does take strength to be able to cope with the inevitable confrontation and disappointment that comes from that but um as a good enough mother uh, you know i am prepared to try and get my children to eat vegetables at some point So thank you for listening today and uh, thank you very much to my guest uh, Pat Preedy. Um I'm on social media on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mothers Matter Podcast and on Twitter I'm at Podcast Mothers. I hardly ever post anything just uh, <clears throat> information about the next um podcast coming up. Uh, you can email me with any comments or suggestions on mothersmatter@outlook.com. Um as I said before my name's Claire Pay. Uh please do rate and review the podcast if it's easy enough for you to do. Um thank you to James Eid my producer and as I said thank you to you for listening. I'll be back soon with another podcast which is going to be on joy. Goodbye.